Morning, everybody. We are going to be in the second week of a series we started last week entitled Rising Strong. If you missed last week, uh, you could go to the website, livingstones.cc, which, by the way, got a new look this week, so you might want to check it out anyhow and click on the message tab. You'll find the podcast there, including uh, the message from last week. I actually stole this title, so I need to give credit where credit is due. There is a uh, university professor by the name of Brene Brown. You might have heard of her. Uh, who wrote a book, several of them, but this one is entitled Rising Strong. I highly recommend it. And I don't recommend books very often, but this one I do. I think it's 12 bucks for both the paperback and even a, a Kindle edition. It's like $500 of therapy, just in $12. So I recommend it. Uh, just by way of review, what we talked about last week is uh, a reality that I, needs no explanation. Um, we are all going to fail. Like We, we are all going to have a fall in our life where we're going to be face down. And the question is, when you find yourself flat on your face, what is going to be your next move? Because you're going to have a hundred different options ahead of you, but only a few will allow you to get back up. And not just to kind of stumble forward back up, but to get back up and to actually rise strong. And that's what we truly want after a fall, to rise up stronger than we were, and even stronger because of our fall and our failure. But the problem is for most of us, when we fall, for our own ego's sake, for what we perceive to be our own survival's sake, we immediately spin a story, a narrative that justifies our fall, and it usually always absolves us of any real wrongdoing in the matter. And here's where I really wish we had more from the characters of the Bible in regards to how they dealt with their own failure. So we used the Apostle Peter last week as an illustration, and that moment when he betrays Jesus, I would have loved to catch a glimpse of how Peter then went on to deal with his shame and his regret and his guilt and weakness and vulnerability. I, I want to see if Peter does what I normally do in regards to having a powerful defensive mechanism that we all have. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Gethsemane, or to the Garden of Eden. We talked about that with the story of Adam and Eve, those defensive mechanisms that Paul was referring to in his communion comments, which, by the way, um, uh, Paul's wife is my sister, and I lived with her for 15 years, so I totally get it, Paul, in terms of the defensive mechanisms that are coming in, in terms of... <laughs> defensive mechanisms like denial... Repression, displacement, projection, reaction, formation, regression, rationalization, and sublimation. We talked about those last week. But what I'm contending, though, is this. That once you find yourself flat on your face on the ground, through the power of the Holy Spirit and further work of discernment and introspection, these defensive mechanisms do not have to be the final or the definitive word in our life. Because if it is, then you'll never rise strong. You'll never come to grips with your true self and what you're really like. You will never discover the root cause of your failing and your fall, and thus you're most likely to keep repeating it. And when you ask in that exasperated tone to yourself, why are you like this? You'll never have an accurate answer, and you'll fall victim to your own BS. And this further work of discernment and introspection, I have to warn you, might sting a little bit. It, it might hurt. Sometimes discovering truths like this causes us pain because it forces us to step into our shame and our regret and our guilt and our vulnerability and our fear and our weakness. But the journey to rising strong only comes through this path. Anything else will simply be more hiding and more pretending 
and more hustling, not only of yourself, but those who are around you. And we trust that through this path, we will ultimately find what Jesus told us, that that truth, that, that truth will set us free. But you know, like, we love redemption stories. Like, they're our favorites. Like, you don't even watch a movie unless it's a story of redemption, of a character who took a fall or who had a failure, but somehow in the end got back up and was stronger in the end than they were from the very beginning. And so all of our favorite movies kind of have that redemption theme behind it. Even somewhere it's in the tie, like the Shawshank Redemption. It's a redemption story. That's why we love it. Or The Green Mile or Return of the Jedi or It's a Wonderful Life. It is a redemption story. Goodwill Hunting, Castaway, The Count of Monte Cristo, Gran Torino, To Kill a Mockingbird, Les Mis is another one. I mean, it's a perfect redemption story. Cinderella Man, The Dark Knight Rises, Invictus, the story of, of Nelson Mandela and the rugby team in South Africa, The Pursuit of Happiness, The Grinch is a redemption story. And perhaps the greatest movie of all time is also Braveheart, also a redemption story. Our favorite stories are about a character that's fallen. They've experienced failure of one kind or other, and after that failing, out of that trial, after that fall, they rise strong. No one is ever entertained by the guy who yeah, lived a pretty boring life, nothing really ever happened. In the end, he retired and went on vacation. Like, nobody, you don't watch two hours of that. Like, boring. Good for them. But those, but those stories are not compelling to us. They don't grip us. They don't move us in any way that draws us to the character where we find ourselves even rooting for them. Nor, on the opposite extreme, do we find ourselves compelled to watch a story of a character who does have a fall, and they're falling, and they're face down on the ground, but in that posture, all they do is spin a story to justify themselves and blame everyone else. You'll get bored with that very easily as well, and annoyed, and conclude, well, they get what they deserve. We don't find ourselves rooting for them to rise strong. It is the love of a good redemption story that we could catch a glimpse of our own struggles with the concept of failure, especially when it comes to our own experience. So, like, just when you think about yourself for a moment, and um, when, you, when you think of the word failure, so just think about failure for a second, um, let me just ask you, go, go ahead and throw it out just out loud. Like, what are the word associations that come to your mind when you think of the word failure, especially when it comes to your own life? When you think of failure, what, what, what comes to your mind? Go ahead, just say it out loud. Sorry, there's no right or wrong. Just whatever. What, did you say the bears? <laughs> yes, that and the Browns. Fall? Yeah. All right, what else comes to your mind? Say it aloud. Got several going. Do you see your diet? Is that what you said? Yeah, I get that. <laughs> totally get that. Disappointment? Yeah. What else comes to mind? Anything else comes to mind? Word association with failure. Shame, yeah, all that's in that. Like, when you get the loser, like, oh, I'm so stupid, I'm like no good, I'm wordless, I'm a loser. Like, there's all sorts of things that kind of come with the idea of failure. But have you ever been in a context where you've heard somebody talk about their failure? And maybe you're in some AA meeting or maybe some Celebrate Recovery meeting or you've been in a small group and somebody shares their story, they share a story of what's happened in their past in terms of their failure and their fall and even in an attempt to learn and grow from it. Whenever you hear somebody's story like that, what comes to your mind then? Yeah, success comes to your mind. What else comes to your mind? When you hear somebody's story of failure and how they came through it, what, what, what always do you feel like? Yeah, there's compassion, there's empathy. Like, it's a, it's a completely different thing. It's like, and so what happens is this dichotomy of when we think about our own failure, it's, oh, I'm such a loser, I'm so stupid. Like, but when we think about other people's failure and then even learning from it, all of a sudden it's a completely different story in terms of how we feel and how we react. And, and, and when we hear their stories of redemption, 
even if they aren't even there yet, we find ourselves rooting for someone in the process of rising strong. We find their willingness to step into their story of shame and guilt and regret and weakness and vulnerability. We find it compelling, especially as we see they are doing so for the purpose of learning and growing. And this is the critical moment of our failure. When we find ourselves face down on the ground, it is in this moment that we have a decision of the will to make. We can either lay here and wallow while feeding ourselves stories of justification and blame to be thrown at everyone, or we can say to ourselves, I know I've fallen, and I know I've failed, and this is going to be the most defining moment of my life. I am not going to stay down, and I will let the lessons of this moment forever change the way that I think and behave so I don't find myself here again, and even more, that I will rise stronger than ever out of it. And the truth is that falling hurts. But to dare to keep being brave and feel your way back up, the willingness to show up and be seen with no guarantees of the outcome, that is the journey to rising strong. And it is in this moment that I'm going to own my own story because when I own my own story, I avoid being trapped as a character in a story somebody else is telling. And people who wade into discomfort and vulnerability and tell the truth about their stories, they are the real warriors. And if I could go back to the Apostle Peter for just a moment, it, just by way of a reminder, it was the night that Jesus was arrested. Right before he gets arrested, uh, Jesus even tells Peter, hey, you're going to deny me. And Peter's emphatic, oh no, I'll never deny you. Even if I have to die, I, I will not deny you. And sure enough, uh, a rooster crows and immediately comes to Peter's mind what he's done. And it says he weeps. It was a real moment of failure. It was a fall. Made worse because of his adamant uh, denial. I'll never deny you. And all it took was the questioning of a little servant girl, and Peter folded quick. Now, if you fast forward in the story, Jesus is crucified. He's raised from the dead. And after his resurrection, he appears to Mary Magdalene and then to the other disciples, including Peter and to Thomas. And, and then the scene shifts, and he's on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are out fishing. And they're on their way back to the shore, and somebody in the boat recognizes, hey, that's Jesus, who's now sitting on the shore, and he's got a fire going. And so they run to Jesus, and Jesus asks them if they have any fish. They recognize him. They gather around Jesus, and Jesus tells them, I want you to sit down so we can eat breakfast together, which this is how I know it's my Savior, because after resurrection, we're still eating breakfast together. Amen? So they get done with the meal, and then Jesus addresses Peter. This is what it says in John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now the story is fascinating to me and there are several things happening here that are easy to miss. 
In the Greek language, they use different words for our English word love. So in your English translation, it will say love, but it could be a variety of different Greek words. And when Jesus begins asking Peter, do you love me? He starts by saying, do you agape me? Which is a Greek word for an unconditional kind of love. And Peter's response back is, Lord, you know I phileo, which is another Greek word for a brotherly friendship kind of love. In fact, the city of Philadelphia gets their name from this, the city of brotherly love. And Peter says back, Lord, you know I phileo you. And Jesus will say once again, Peter, do you agape me? Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then finally, Jesus, the last time, he'll switch it and he'll ask him, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me? And Peter will say, Lord, you, you know I do. But his feelings are hurt. And they're hurt because he thinks Jesus should know that he loves him. And he's asked three times now. But what is Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is he's extending grace to Peter and he's entering into, and Peter doesn't even realize it at the moment, but he's entering into Peter's failure and vulnerability and guilt and shame and weakness. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Do you remember? Three. And how many times did Jesus give Peter an opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus? Three. Jesus is helping Peter have a vision for his rising strong. You're going to go from being my betrayer, which is a colossal failure, to being a shepherd of my people. That's why he says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. And what Jesus is saying is your identity will not be determined by your failure. Your identity will be determined by my calling. You, Peter, will be a shepherd of the community that bears my name. And this is why later in Peter's life, he can say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, to the elders or to the shepherds among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, a fellow shepherd, and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And what I want to know is, throughout Peter's life, after this incident, how many times did he share this story, or even did he share this story of, of betraying Jesus? Or did he bury it and hope that no one would find out, <laughs> even though the Apostle John recorded it so we could all know about it for thousands of years to come? Did he consider it to be an embarrassing moment of his past that he just wanted to pretend didn't exist and file it under the mistakes I made? Please do not open a file we all have. And one of the other disciples, if they were to say, Hey, Peter, you remember that time that Jesus was arrested, put on trial, and you were asked by that servant girl? And Peter's there, shut it. Now, of course, here's where I don't have an exact answer, but I'm going to guess, no. I'm going to guess not only because John feels free to have permission to record it, that Peter will tell this story often. And the reason why is because we all love redemption stories. And this is Peter's redemption story. I fell big time. I was flat on my face. But I didn't stay there. By Jesus' grace, I was able to rise again, and Peter dares to keep being brave and feel his way back up. He is willing to show up and be seen with absolutely no guarantee of the outcome. Now, someone else betrayed Jesus too that weekend. Do you remember who else betrayed Jesus? It was Judas Iscariot. And he too, when he came to his senses and realized what he'd done, he too wept, just like Peter. But then, do you know what, Jesus, what Judas did next? 
Remember what the Bible says? He went out and killed himself. He hung himself. Not only to not rise strong, but to never rise again. Now listen, Peter could have chosen the route of Judas. Or if that was too extreme, he could have at least run back to Capernaum, his hometown, where he was from, and just kind of forgot the whole thing. Just in embarrassment, guilt, and shame, just kind of slipped back to his old way of life. Or even if Capernaum wasn't safe because everyone there knew Jesus and all the events that had taken place, he could have found some other place that no one really knew who he was or what he had done. Peter could have, if he wanted to, spiral in all sorts of sabotaging narratives, saying to himself, there's no way Jesus could possibly want me to be a disciple now. Like, there's no way Jesus, like, Jesus probably hates me. Like, he would never want, like, just lost all faith and confidence in me. Or he could have blamed the servant girl. Maybe even blamed the other disciples. If you all would have stuck around and been in that courtyard with me, I would have been outnumbered, and maybe I would have had more confidence to admit who I belonged to and who Jesus was. But, but where is Peter in the story in John? He's fishing with the other disciples. He keeps showing up. He's being brave and he's feeling his way back up, displaying a willingness to show up and be seen with absolutely no guarantee of outcome. And that, my friends, is true bravery. It's the beginning of rising strong. Peter will have to wade into discomfort and vulnerability and tell the truth about his story, and that's what makes his fall the very thing that leads to his rising strong. And how many times did Peter tell the story? I'm going to guess often because it gave hope to maybe a young Gentile Christian who found themselves once again visiting a pagan temple and participating in the pagan rituals and then walking away in all sorts of guilt and shame and I can't be a follower of Jesus and he must be so upset, must be so disappointed in me. It allowed Peter to say, are you, are you kidding me? Let me tell you what I did. Like Jesus even warned me I would deny him, and I protested, oh no, I'd give my life for you. And then moments later, a little servant girl asked if I were one of Jesus' disciples, and man, I folded like a rickety metal folding chair, which they had back in Peter's day in the basement fellowship hall of the church. And then afterwards, Jesus looked right at me. Like I mean, I said I didn't even know the man, and Jesus looked right at me. And that story of shame and regret and guilt and weakness and vulnerability changes everything. Not only for Peter, but for those who are encouraged that it is possible to fall flat on your face and rise strong. And that's why we love redemption stories. Whether it be shared a story at an AA meeting where someone can say, let me tell you how hard I fell into alcoholism and how I lost everything. But now I can say I have been sober for 13 years and have got all of this back. And that's why it's encouraging at a Celebrate Recovery meeting to hear the story of someone who overcame some particular hurt or habit or hang-up in their life, some wound that they experienced that profoundly brought them to their knees, or that habit that they were sure they would never overcome, that they knew not only was it killing them, but everyone that touched them, or that hang-up of bitterness of resentment, or just a way of thinking that was totally dysfunctional and ruining relationships, but from that let me tell you the story of how I was able to rise strong. We love stories of redemption. But I have to warn you, and this is important. Peter did not go from betraying Jesus to being a great shepherd, leader, and church planter. You don't go from one to the other. Not without a messy middle. Peter's betrayal is act one. Him being a great leader and church planter will be act three. But Peter doesn't get to Act 3 without passing through Act 2. 
and Act 2 is always the hardest. It is always the messiest. Your Act 2 is the key to rising strong for Act 3. For Peter to not betray Jesus again, he has to figure out why he did what he did to begin with. He's going to have to lean into his own discomfort and vulnerability and figure it out. And this is where he has to discover the pretending, the hiding, and the hustling he attempted to spend to protect his own ego didn't work. And in that discovery, learn the truth about why he did what he did. In short, he has to figure out the story that he's telling himself. And one of the things I like about Brene Brown's book, she shares a story. It's a profound little phrase, and she'll use it often. She discovered it. Uh, she was on vacation with her husband. She's in, in Texas, and they're swimming. And they used to do that competitively, I guess, when they were younger. And so she just got caught up in the moment of just being with her husband on vacation and all the warm, fuzzy feelings that went with that. And so she had a moment where she swam over to her husband. And she began to share how happy she was and how thankful she was that they were there together and how much it meant to her and kind of had this tender moment. And he just swam right by her, like just totally ignored her, like brushed her off. And so she thought to herself, well, surely he just, he didn't hear me. He just must have, you know. And so she swam back over to and tried to share the same thing, you know, just how much it meant to her that they were there together and how happy she was. And once again, he just kind of brushed her off. Now, in this moment, for most of us, this is where we want to go, you big jerk, and we want to come all, like, like, with like 10 years of history behind us, you never do this, and you're always like this, and 10 years will come up, like, rush right out. And instead, she kind of remained calm for just a moment and recognized, because of his behavior, there was a story that she was telling herself. And so what she said to him was, she said, listen, here's what I just did, and here's how I perceived you responding. And then she said, and the story that I'm telling myself is, is that you don't want to be here with me. And the reason why you don't want to be here with me is because you don't find me as attractive as I used to be when we swam together in this swimsuit. Like she's had a whole story. And you might think to yourself, oh, that's crazy. How could she say like that? But what she's doing was she's leaning into her own vulnerability, her own weakness, her own shame, her own, all those things. And instead of accusing him, was able just to say, this is the story that I'm telling myself. So simple. There's a profound thought, like, oh, yeah. Like when Peter falls and he's flat on his face, He's telling himself a story. And what he's got to figure out is, what is the story that I'm telling myself? And when each of us has a fall, and when we, each of us fail, there's a story that we're telling my, ourselves. And you have to figure out what that is. What is the story that we're telling ourselves? And this is the key to all of our failings. So when we're lying face down on the ground, whether it's a big thing, maybe it's the divorce or the termination uh, from your job, or even the little things, like you just forgot you promised your kid you'd help them with an assignment, or you totally spaced a lunch date with one of your good friends. In those moments, what is the story you're telling yourself? This is the messy middle. This is act two. And it's hard because the first story you're probably telling yourself isn't the truth. It's you still hiding and pretending and hustling, and there's work to be done here. Now, this isn't profound, but the truth is most of us never wrestle with the story we're telling ourselves. And so Brene Brown will say in her book, you, you, we have to rumble, is what she says, with your story. You're going to have to lean into the discomfort and vulnerability and unpack all of the negative emotion that comes with that thought and that fall, the shame and the regret and the guilt and the vulnerability and the fear and the weakness all of it. So let me invite you, as we talk about rising strong, to walk into the story of your failure. And I know this is counterintuitive, and even at cross-purposes with your ego, that's still trying to spin a, a, your failure, because most of us just want to get out. We don't want to dwell. Even if, even if we feel, still feel it, we would rather pretend that it didn't happen. So giving space to actually take in the entire story of failure 
isn't something we love to do. Like, who wants to sit around and spend time thinking of all the ways I suck? Like, nobody likes that. But what she says is, you have to get curious. Like, you have to recognize what you're feeling in the middle of this fall and failure and get really curious of why I feel this way and why I'm thinking these things and why I have these emotions. And a lot could hit the fan when you start getting curious. But sometimes you have to wrestle with a story to find the truth. And it begins with just acknowledging and admitting and owning that I have feelings. Like when you have that moment where you, you feel like you want to hide, and sometimes on real subconscious levels you just want to run, you just want to hide. Like and rumbling with your story at least begins with acknowledging, I feel like I want to hide. Or when you want to punch a wall, being able to acknowledge, I want to punch a wall. Or when you've had a terrible day or a failing or a fall and you want to go home and eat a whole package of Nutter Butters, dipped in milk until they're totally soggy, and then eat it with a spoon that, hypothetically speaking, nobody else, just me? Okay. To be able to say, I feel this. And the story I'm telling myself is, I am this. Or I feel anxious and sick to my stomach. Or I didn't get that position and I, that I applied for, and now I'm between anger and fear. The first step is simply to, rec- to recognize something got triggered. <laughs> I got a feeling, and I got an emotion, and now I have to get curious about it. And I don't listen, for us, uh, emotions and feelings kind of get a bad rap. And the problem is we have subtly been taught that we're not supposed to have a lot of feelings and emotions, especially guys. You especially aren't supposed to have negative <laughs> emotions, except anger. Anger is a socially acceptable emotion for a guy, but sadness and fear and worry, and vulnerability. Sometimes you grew up even with someone shaming you for having emotions. Oh, you're just too sensitive. Or you're acting like a girl. Or you need to toughen up. Or you're so emotional, you can fill in the blank. And the denial of our feelings and emotions is a denial of our own divinely created makeup. Like the totality of who we are as humans, that God created us with feelings and emotions. This is a part of the created order. And a proper holistic view of ourselves should include the reality that we feel. We have emotions. Now, I'm not saying they should be the things that, you know, being a slave to your feelings is not good, but they're excellent servants. What it says is we were created in the image of God. And what that means is if we were created in the likeness of a God, listen, the God of the Bible, he has feelings and he has emotions. He is, do not ever think for a moment that our God is some boring, stoic God. Like, if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, whoo, I mean, read Hosea. One minute God's like talking to his people, you all are whores, <laughs> and the next moment, but I'm going to love you anyhow, I'm going to win you back. Like, he's got anger, he's got jealousy, he's, he's all over the place. He's temperamental, really, when you think about it. So there might be a critique of God, and I get that, but boring isn't one of them. If you read through the prophets, he is a God who feels passionately. And we tend to want to go in the opposite direction, being indifferent and stoic. And so what happens is when we fall or when we fail, or something's hurting us like that, we move into the, I don't care, right? We say things like, I don't care what they think. Now, by the way, the person who says, I don't care, or I don't care what they think the most, cares the most about what they think and, and how they're feeling. We have little phrases like, whatever, who cares? Or, um, everyone see the movie Gone with the Wind? I know it's dating myself. I, didn't, I wasn't alive when it came out. Um, there's a famous line in the end, right? right? Frankly, my dear, this is what Clark Gable says, frankly, my dear, I don't give it. Like, I went to a private Christian university for college and, uh, in Arkansas, and uh, they would show movies at the Benson Auditorium. But because it was a Christian college, they would censor the movies. 
So if there was a cuss word, it would just be silent or be bleeped out, and they'd cut out scenes that they thought were inappropriate. And one night they showed Gone with the Wind. So we all went, it's a packed, packed. Everyone was going to see Gone with the Wind. And we all knew, listen, the most classic famous line is the line at the end where it says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And so we're all sitting there wondering, are they going to, will they just like bleep that out? Like, will they cut that out? So we're all sitting on the edge of our seats, and it comes on. And they left it in, and the whole place went nuts. Like, we'd never, <laughs> never heard a cuss word before. It was just like... That's a story we spin. And what I'm saying is, you don't have to be embarrassed by that. That doesn't make you weak. That makes you human and vulnerable with real feelings and emotions. And if you want to rise from a fall, you're going to have to first recognize your emotions and then get curious about them. Why do I feel that way? And why am I thinking that? And why is this the emotion that is hitting me the hardest? And why did I behave this way instead of an alternative behavior? And getting curious can lead to hurt. We may learn things about ourselves we don't particularly find pleasant. And I think really um, the reason why a lot of people avoid counseling or therapists is because they'll say, oh, I don't don't have the money. Or they'll say, I I don't think it will work. But that's not the real reason. I think for most people, it's because they're afraid that if they get with a therapist or a counselor, they'll learn something about themselves that they don't want to know. There's fear in that. In fact, uh, my wife and I, we've been to counseling several times because of her. And uh, <laughs> the very first time we went, uh, we were having an issue. We just couldn't get, pa- we just couldn't get past. It just kept coming up. And it was clearly her fault. And I just thought to myself, um, we'll go to a counselor, tell him the story. He'll see it's her fault. Tell her it's her fault. We'll move on and be fine, right? That's what. So we go to the counselor's office. I'm telling my story. She tells her story. Then we spent like three weeks on me because it was really my fault. Like, huh, <laughs> who would have guessed? Brene Brown will say, because we prefer certainty over curiosity. We prefer our armor over vulnerability and prefer knowing, thinking we know, over learning. And that keeps us from having to step into our vulnerability and it also keeps us from rising strong. And I don't know what it looked like, but I'm telling you, Peter had to step into and lean towards the story of his betrayal. He had to figure out the story he was telling himself and how that affected his emotions, his body, his thoughts, his belief, and his actions. And so what Brene Brown says is you should just, in that moment where you're trying to be curious about your feelings and emotions and why you're behaving the way you are, she says you should write your, she called it the SFD. Now, uh, she says if you're talking to kids, call it the stormy first draft, but the S there, she actually had another word. We're going to go with stormy, um, but there's another S word she used here. She says, because what's happening is because the first story you're always telling yourself is never the truth. That's your stormy first draft. But get it out there so you can really get curious and analyze it. So when you get fired, go ahead and write down the story you're telling yourself. Well, the company didn't make as much profit this year as it did last year, and they have to downsize and save money, and, and that's why I lost my job. Yeah, it's impersonal. I mean, it's not really me. It's just the, the company. Or my boss is an idiot. He didn't really see how much time and energy I put into my job. And, and by the way, I was always being undermined by Steve, who had no problem elevating himself at every chance he got and putting me down. And you didn't really like the job anyhow. You're thinking about quitting and looking elsewhere, and really, you're overqualified to be working at a place like that anyhow, and the hours really weren't working out for you, and you're really worth more than they were paying. I mean, there's a whole story we spin, but you have to get curious about all of it. Because after that stormy first draft, you might have moments where you recognize Actually, I was late all the time. 
And while I was there, I was always distracted and talking to my coworkers or on social media, or I really didn't care much for the project, so I didn't pay much attention. Like, in the end, you'll never recover from a fall or a failure without this work. You have to be curious, asking questions like this. What more do I need to learn and understand about this situation? There might be some things you know objectively, and what are they? But there's other things you're making some pretty big, big assumptions in. And what are those? Or what more do I need to learn and understand about the other people in the story? I've assigned to them roles and what they meant, what they're doing. But what additional information do I need? Or what questions or clarifications might be helpful to me? And perhaps most importantly, what more do I need to learn and understand about myself? What's underneath my response? What am I really feeling? And what part did I play? And this is just the beginning of what it looks like to own our story. We'll come back to here next week and talk about you know, the further steps to rising strong, to lean into our vulnerability. It's just the beginning of the process of rising strong. But in this effort, I, I do want to say it takes bravery to do this. And, and it's not profound. You hear, well, yeah, of course we should, but we don't. Like We just move on quickly. But in this big world that we live in, we all need at least one small safe space to walk through these fears and our falls. And so what I'd say is, uh, if you need a therapist or a counselor to help walk this through, you should get one. Or if you've got a best friend that you know, no, that is my, on, in this world, that is my safe space where I can sh- share my fall and my failure and they'll speak truthfully back to me, go have coffee with your best friend. And let me just give you two other opportunities that are going down right now here at the Livingstones Church. In your bulletin, you'll see an insert for groups And I found here that groups can be a very safe space for you to walk in and say, I have to tell you what happened to me this week. And to be surrounded by people who love you and want to encourage you and pray for you and text you on Thursday to make sure you're okay and follow through with the very thing that you said you were going to do. And so uh, there's different times of the week, formats, leaders, topics of study, but ultimately it could be a very safe space for you to own your story and enter into uh, leaning towards that vulnerability. And then the last one I would recommend is Celebrate Recovery. It's offered here every Monday night, and it has been for years. And they have kind of a curriculum that they go through, and it's about to start all over again on Monday, January 22nd. And it is a perfect entry point for you that evening of Monday, January 22nd. And listen, there's always nervousness in it, but I promise you it is just overcoming that nervousness to walk in here and to be surrounded by people who love greatly who are non-judgmental, who have been there, and allows a safe space to say, oh, yeah, I know that fall, and be able to talk through those sorts of things. It's important to have that. So we'll pick up with this next week. But in it for now, like Peter, if you find yourself in act, in act two, that messy middle, there's another act coming. And when it shows up, you want to face it with the ability to rise strong after what happened to you in act one. But you can't get there until you walk through act two. That's not always easy.